that as we gather together and as we uh, listen to your word, that you would meet us here in this place in a way that we've maybe never experienced before. Father, we know you're good and we know uh, some of the promises that your word says and we, we pray that you would fulfill those promises and your word tells us that you're faithful and so Father, we're asking that you show that, that we can see you here in this place and as we go out, that we would see you in every place of our lives. We thank you for the good things that we see going on in the world today. We thank you for uh, all the, the blessings that you've poured out but Father, there are so many other things that we need to, to pray for so many broken lives and broken things that we need to, to ask for healing. So Father, I just pray that you would be in these situations in sicknesses, all the cancers, all the, all the sicknesses that are a part of this church, a part of the people that we love. Pray that you would be in, in these situations with the families involved and that you would just heal and make your peace so evident. Father, again, we're thankful for who you are. We know that you are good. And we pray that you meet us in this place this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to take a look, we're going to continue to take a look at the book of James. And the book of James, as Pastor Aaron's been preaching through it for the past few weeks, the book of James is really just full of practical life. How to live the practical Christian life as a follower of Jesus. And if you're here today and you, you hear me say that and you think, well, I'm not a follower of Jesus, that's okay. I, I want you to know that that's really okay. I actually very much understand that. And maybe if you've grown up in the church and, and you've never really thought about this, think about, think about the stories of Jesus. It's actually pretty valid to not believe because think about how unbelievable these stories are. I mean, a man born of a virgin, first off, that's pretty unbelievable. He died and rose from the dead. He healed people by spitting on mud and putting it in their eyes. He fed 5,000 men and their families with a little boy's lunch. So if you're here today and you don't believe these stories, I get it, totally understand. But if there's anything that might convince you that there might be a little bit of shred to truth to this, it's the fact that James, who's the brother of Jesus, <clears throat> actually decided to, to believe in him as well, to pray to his own brother. Now, if you're like me, I have a brother. I've got an older brother. Uh, he's just three years older than me, which is the perfect time for him to be just enough older than me that he could always beat me up. So I, I remember growing up with my brother. I remember the stories. I remember the things that, that we did together. We shared a room until I graduated and went to college. That wasn't exactly a fun experience. I remember the times that I, I stole Fruit Loop from him when I was three, and he sat on me until I would give it back. I mean, I remember these stories of... of good things. I love my brother. Don't get me wrong. You might hear this and think I don't like him, but he's a really good guy. But because of the things I know about him, I know all the girlfriends that he's ever dated. I know the ones that he probably shouldn't have dated. I know things about my brother, and it's because I know things about my brother. It's because I've lived with him for so long that if he ever claimed to be the son of God or asked me to pray to him, there's no way, not a chance. And, I, and I'm assuming if you have a brother or sister, you'd probably say the same thing about yours. But there's something there's something about Jesus that must have been so compelling that James, who, who probably had very similar experiences to you and I with Jesus as his brother, there must have been something so compelling about him that he decided that maybe there is some truth to this. Maybe there's something worth giving my life for. There must have been something so compelling about Jesus that maybe this is the, the real deal. So if you're here today and, and you, you're not you're not quite sold on this, I understand, but if there's anything that could convince you, it might be the fact that James believed as well. 
Now, a few weeks ago, Aaron asked me to, to come preach today. Uh, if, if this is your first week here, I'm not the normal pastor. I'm, I'm just one of the youth pastors. And uh, Pastor Aaron, our, our pastor, is actually gone with, uh, with his family. His sister got married yesterday, and so he's celebrating with them. And he asked me to come preach. And I said, yeah, sure, I'm happy to do it. And I'm sure some of you are really happy to see me up here because you remember the last time I preached. And that we got out, remember, about 15, 20 minutes early. You guys might be pretty excited to see me up here today. I can't tell you if that's going to happen or not. I'm not quite sure yet. I guess you'll just have to stick around and figure out. But um, this morning, we're going to take a look at the book of James, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So I'm going to read that if you'd like to stand. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, your mo- and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a really cheery passage, isn't it? It's a lot of fun. What's our first thoughts when we read this passage? I mean, I read this passage and... I could have sworn that Aaron took off this week on purpose because it was this passage. I mean, it's not not very fun. It's not very cheery. We all like the passages that are very joyful and exciting. But I'm going to talk about two temptations that come up uh, immediately when we start to read this passage. So this this one is is not very happy. And uh, how many of you know the the point and read method of reading the Bible? It's pretty pretty common around Christians who are pretty new to faith. They're not quite sure what, what they want to read, but they know that they should be reading their Bible, but they're not quite sure what, what to read. So this is kind of what happens. You, you close your eyes, you open your Bible, and you point to a page, and you read that. Has anyone ever done that? Am I the only one that's ever done that? So a few people have. If, for those of you that have done it, uh, maybe my experience is not, not the best. Have you ever found that you've landed passages you don't like? Like, I can't tell you how many times as a teenager or a college student that I, I did that and landed in Revelation or Leviticus or one of those ones that I really don't want to read. Have you ever read through Leviticus? It's pretty, pretty painful at times. It's not, not the most fun to do. This passage is one of those. It's one of those that we, our first temptation when we come across this passage is to skip right over it. We don't want to read this. We don't want to dwell on it. We don't want to stay here because nothing sounds fun. It's talking about how self-indulgent we are. We don't want to read that about ourselves. So instead, our first reaction is to just skip over this passage and not stay there. See, we all like the, the passages that talk about how we're made in the image of God. We love to hear about the promises of God and how good he is and how he's going to deliver us and all the good things about God. His promises are good. We love hearing that, those things. So when I, when I would come across Leviticus or, or Revelation or one of those passages I didn't want to read, more often than not, I'd flip to the Gospels. I'd go to Romans. I'd go to something more encouraging. And then I started to find out that, that it wasn't helping me. You know, I'd find something encouraging to read, and it'd be great. But it's not exactly what I needed. So it's for that reason we're going to stick around in this passage today. And I encourage you, if you ever get to a passage in Scripture that you're reading through on your own that you don't like, go back and reread it. Stay there. Think about it, study it a bit, learn some things. Because staying in the, the uncomfortable, it's actually a bit healthy sometimes. 
Like how many, how many of you know that working out is good? Why is it good? Because it's uncomfortable. It's staying in the uncomfortable actually helps you out. It, you, the little bit of pain that you go through actually helps you in the long run. And so it's the same thing with, with some passages of, of scripture that we don't like so much. The second, uh, second temptation that we go through, we immediately think that this is not about me. This, this scripture is not about me at all. I mean, if you've ever heard me teach before, I usually teach about the, the context of the passage that we're in. You know, like when you, you read through James and you realize that James is the brother of Jesus, it changes the way you read this passage. It changes the way you see what he's saying because he was actually his brother. He had the same experience as I had with my brother. And then when you read Paul say something along the lines of the joy of the Lord and you learn that he was in prison when he wrote it, it changes the way you see things. Context is important, and maybe you know that. Maybe you've, you've sat here before, you've heard some messages, and you know that context is super important, and you know that this uh, piece of scripture was written about 2,000 years ago. And you're like, that was not written to me. That was written 2,000 years ago to those people. And then you read the first few words of the, of the passage that say, now listen, you rich people. And you're like, that definitely is not about me. Have you seen my bank account? Did you see the car I drove here in? I'm not rich. No one can tell me I'm rich. Not a chance. We all have this temptation to say, this is not about me. Or maybe you are a bit wealthy and you think this is about the ones 2,000 years ago. Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, it's about that person. That person right there. And maybe you're thinking about someone in the room or someone that's not in the room. You see the car they drive? Do you know how much they have? You see, have you seen their house? But here's the thing. This is not one of those passages that's, that's written to a specific thing. This is one of those passages. Remember, the book of James is written to, um, <clears throat> to be practical life application for all Christians. So this book was written to all Christians at all times and all places. It was written to a specific group of people, but it can be told to all people. So if you're a believer in this room today, this is meant for you. If you're not a believer in this room today, you have a bit more flexibility. This doesn't exactly apply to you as much, but I, I still believe that even if you're not a believer, even if you don't claim to follow Christ here today, you can still get something out of this. And although this isn't the most cheery passage, although this isn't the, the happiest thing in the world, it's not going to encourage us all that much, we need to know that that's not always what the Bible's for. See, the Bible can be a very encouraging book. I really do believe that. I, I think it's one of the most encouraging books in the world. But if all you're looking for is encouragement and, and being uplifted, go to Barnes & Noble or Walmart and find the, the inspiration book section. And I know the Bible's in that section. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. The Bible's in the inspiration section in those, in those stores. But find another book there. It'll, it'll lift you up. It'll be very encouraging. But the Bible is sometimes meant for other things. It's sometimes meant for correction. And so James, when he's writing this right now, when he's writing to these people and he's telling them about how self-indulgent they are, he's trying to correct their behavior. And you're, you might be asking why. Well, if he's writing to, to those that follow Jesus, those that follow Jesus have uh, this way of life that they're called to live. It's called love. Love is the way that we're called to live if we're to follow Jesus. And what James is seeing this whole book is written about practical life as a Christian. He's basically telling you, this is how you live a life of love. And so he sees a bunch of people who are not doing that. So this is his way of, of kind of correcting this and saying, you're called to something greater than you're doing right now. 
What you're doing is not the loving thing to do. How many of you have ever, those of you that have been a Christian for a long time, if you've known someone who's come to faith after you, what usually happens? What I'd love to say, what I'd love to believe is that when someone becomes a believer, when someone becomes a Christian, when someone decides to follow Jesus, we start holding them accountable. We start meeting with them weekly and say, hey, how's, how's this thing going? Let me tell you about my life. Let me tell you about my walk in faith. Let me ask you about, let me ask about yours. How's it going? What's going on? And then through those conversations, you might see that, oh, you know, it, it might be a bit better. It might be a bit more loving if you reacted this way in those situations and whatever the story is. So if I ever had a friend who had become a Christian or who I know is a professed follower of Jesus that I see is not living in the way of love, it's actually not very loving of me to not say anything. If I see that, that, that there's someone who's not living in the way of love that they've claimed that they're supposed to live, it's not loving at all for me to do nothing. It's actually more loving for me to, to confront them and to say something. That's what James is doing in this passage. So he starts by talking about three different types of wealth, three different types of wealth that they have uh, in this time. We don't really recognize this wealth as much as they do. They recognize crops, clothes, and money. Now we recognize money. We, we totally get that money equals wealth. Crops and clothes, on the other hand, we don't quite get as much. But in that time, that was kind of their status symbol. That was how they, they said that I am someone. I have a storehouse full of food. I have closets full of clothes, and I, I can wear a different, different pair of clothes for each event, each day of the week. That, that was a status symbol for them. It was something that they uh, loved. And then James says, you've hoarded things, you've hoarded wealth in the last days. And our first reaction when we hear this, you've hoarded wealth in the last days, is he saying that wealth is bad? Is he asking, is he actually telling us that having stuff, having things is a bad thing? I don't think so. I don't think he's saying that at all. But what he is saying is that you have things, you have stuff, use it. If, you, if you've been called to live a life of love, use it for love. See, he talks about how the crops have rotted, moths have eaten the clothes, and the, the money has corroded. Well, how do crops rot? They sit around in the storehouse too long. They're not eaten. How do clothes get eaten by moths? They sit in the closet too long and they're not worn. No one looks at them for years. How does money corrode? It sits in a vault too long. No one uses it. Now, I, I don't actually think that James is saying that there's actually money sitting in a vault somewhere. I, I don't think he's saying that there's actually food rotting. Now, some maybe, but I don't think he's talking about a specific person or, or a specific uh, situation. What he's saying is that you have all this stuff Steward it well, because it matters. If you're called to live a life of love, use the stuff that you've earned. Use the stuff that you've made for that purpose. See, it's almost as if Jesus has asked us to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to give to the, to the needy. It's almost as if James is saying, remember what Jesus taught you. Go do that. See, no... This is one of those topics, this is one of those hard things that we don't like talking about. And, and I, I swear Aaron left this because it was this passage, but money is one of those things that no one wants to be told what to do with. And, and maybe you're here and you've heard me just talk about money. 
and you're kind of checking out right now. And maybe if, if that's true, I get it. I've heard the things too. But it might be because you think that because we're a church, we only want your money. I want to be the first to confront that. We don't care as much as, we don't care about how much you put in the offering plate. We care much more about your spiritual well-being. The reason we want you to give is because it's a spiritual issue. Not because we want your money. We want you to give so that you can become closer to Jesus. We really do believe that that impacts that. We believe that that's a step. See, money, the reason we don't like talking about it, it's one of the biggest things that comes in between our relationship with God. And if I'm going to be completely honest, it's probably number two in my heart. You know, if there was a ranking system of gods or idols, it's probably number two. I'd like to say that God was number one, and then if I'm being honest, money's probably right there um, coming up on him. I, I think about it all the time. My wife gets mad at me all the time because I, I'm constantly thinking, no, I don't, I don't think we should buy that. I don't think we should do this. It costs too much all the time. She's laughing at me right now because she knows it's the truth. And I, I'd be shocked if I wasn't the only one here that thought that way. Now, it may not be as high on your list as me, but I'd be shocked if I was the only one that thought about money all the time. I'd be shocked if money didn't impact anyone else. I mean, Jesus thought it was really important. One-tenth of every verse in the Gospels has to do with money. One-tenth of every verse. There's also uh, 16 of 38 of his parables talked about money and possessions. In the Bible, in the Bible as a whole, there's 500 verses on prayer less than 500 on faith, but there's more than 2,000 verses on money. It's pretty important. I mean, the, the writers of the Bible thought it was so important that they needed to put it everywhere because it's something that captures our hearts so tough. It's one of those things that it gets wrapped up and, and we're not quite sure what to do. We're always in the pursuit of more money, more possessions, more things, and, and we're not quite sure why. I mean, we've, we've heard the statistics. We've heard the, the people that say that the, the rich and, and the famous, they're not satisfied when they have all the stuff. We've heard them say that, but we're not quite sure that that applies to us because I know if I had more money, I'd be happy, right? That's what we all think. If I, if I just didn't have student loans, I'd be happy, right? If, if I had a bigger house, if I had a nicer car, I mean, all of those resonate with me. We, we all hear that, but we all think that maybe, maybe that's not for us. But if you're around this church very long, uh, you're gonna start hearing us talk about next steps. We're gonna talk about next spiritual steps for, for everyone here. And maybe you've heard us talk about it a little bit before, but one of those next steps, one of the things that we're gonna talk about is giving generously. And that's not, again, please don't hear me say that we want you to give generously because we want your money. No, we care much more about your spiritual well-being. We think it's a spiritual issue. That's why we bring it up. Part of it is, heck, I don't see that money in the first place, so it's not like we, we want that money for our gain. We want it because we want it for you. It's much better as, as a believer to be giving because it releases your heart from that grip that money puts on it. I, I don't know anyone who wouldn't say that money is one of the top things in their life that they think about. See, we do believe you become closer to God when you give like I said, there's this grip on our hearts because of money or because of possessions or because of jealousy of other people's money or possessions or envy over this or that. When we start to give, 
and we start to let go of that, it's totally countercultural the way we think. Like, because we think, I want more money, more money makes me happy, so if I give, I'm not happy, right? That's kind of how, how the thinking goes, and I totally get that. But it's not how it works. Remember, God is the God that turns everything up on his head. Jesus was the one that came as a king, but served. It's countercultural, it's opposite to how we think. It's not normal. We don't think this way. But should we? I mean, is it, is it the kind of thing that we should start thinking about more? Now, of course, I do want you to tithe. I do want you to give to the church. But more for you than for the church. I, I want it for you because it's a marker of your spiritual maturity. And, and if there's something in you that says that I can't do that, I don't care so much that you give to this church as much as you give to somewhere. There's plenty of organizations, plenty of charities that would love to use the money that's, as James says, corroding, sitting around. See, and James also talks about the luxury and the self-indulgence that we live in. And maybe you're here and you think, there's nothing about my life that's luxurious. Nothing about my life that's self-indulgent. I mean, again, you've seen my car, you've seen my house. If you knew the money in my bank account, you'd know I can't even afford rent. I can't even afford air conditioning. There's nothing luxurious about the way I'm living. And I don't want to diminish anyone's struggles. I, I know that that's the, the case uh, for a lot of people. The last thing I want to do is diminish anyone's struggles, but just because that's the case doesn't, doesn't make the call on your life any less. You're still called to live out of a life of love if you're a follower of Jesus. You're still called to be generous. Now, generosity looks like different things to different people. I mean, there's people in this room that make more money than others. It's just a fact of life. It's always going to be that way. But that's going to look different for, for someone that makes $100,000 a year versus someone that makes $10,000 a year. Generosity is going to look different. And I'm not talking about how much money goes in the offering plate either. See, some of us hold our time captive. We value our time so much, and we have some really good reasons for it. We have some really good ways to, to talk about it. I want to spend time with my family. I need to rest. I need my eight hours of sleep, sometimes ten hours of sleep. You know, I, we, I need these things and these things and these things. What if generosity for, for you, if that's you, what if it just looked like volunteering a couple hours a week? At a local charity, at your church, or whatever it is, what if the generosity that, and the life of love that God is calling us to comes, comes out in volunteering? Maybe for you, and, and I know this is something for me, and my wife just did this yesterday, um, what if it's just going through your closet, looking at all the clothes that you've never worn or worn once or haven't worn in years? I know plenty of people who would love to, love to have more than a couple pairs of clothes. Or looking through your cupboards and, and looking at all the canned goods that you never have or knowing that you have extra food or more money for food and giving to a, a food pantry. What if it's something as simple as that? Giving can be so many, so many different things and the hard thing about this is I'm asking, Jesus is asking for sacrifice. Sacrifice is not a fun word and we, we hear all the time here in the church, and I know especially this church, if you've heard Pastor Aaron preach, I don't know how you can leave this place. I don't know how you can leave this church without hearing a message of love. He calls us to love 
all the time. Jesus calls us to it and Aaron reminds us of that every week. It's generosity is, comes out of our love. If we're living a life of love, we become generous. That's just one of the steps and, and we have a bunch of different steps to take and this is just one of them because we think it's a mark of our spiritual maturity. There's so many different things, so many different ways that we can uh, become generous. And I've only mentioned a few, time, clothing, money, food. There's so many different ways to do it. Now, the thing is, this is hard. This is a really hard thing to do. It's countercultural to the way we think. Now, some of us in this room give weekly. Some of us give monthly. Some of us give all the time. Some of us have never given before in our lives, and that's okay. I, I think the hardest jump to take is to start giving one time, and then after that, to, to give a bit more and a bit more. It's hard to do, and I, and I understand that, but I want to read a story. Um, Bob Goff, uh, Pastor Aaron's been re- reading from a book called Everybody Always for the past few weeks now. Um, the book before Everybody Always is Love Does. The book Everybody Always answers the question, who am I supposed to love and how often? Well, everybody, always. That's the call if we're to be followers of Jesus. And the the book that he wrote before that is Love Does because love is an action. Love is not a feeling. Love goes out and does. So I'm gonna read uh, just one of the stories, a time that he learned about um, generosity in his life. When I was a kid, I used to play a game called Bigger and Better. You probably played the same game when you were young too. In this game, everybody starts with something of little value, like a dime, and then everybody heads out into the neighborhood and sees, to see what they can trade it for. You knock on people's doors and ask if they'd be willing to trade for something for the dime. Then you go to the next door with whatever they traded you, and the goal is to come back with a bigger, better thing than you started out with. The bigger it is, the better it is. My son Richard set out with a dime a while back. He went to the, the first door and said, hi, we're playing bigger and better. I've got a dime and I'm hoping to trade it up for something bigger. Do you have anything you can trade me? The guy at the door had never heard of this game. Nevertheless, he was immediately in and he shouted over to his wife, hey Marge, there's a kid here and we're playing bigger and better. I love that he said the word we there. What do we have that's bigger and better than a dime? Richard walked away with a mattress. Rich went with his buddies to the next door and they knocked while Rich stood on the porch with his mattress. The door opened and his muffled voice could barely be heard as he shouted through the surda pillow top asking if this neighbor would trade him anything for something bigger and better than a mattress. A little while later, he skipped away from the house having traded the mattress for a ping pong table. Richard wheeled the ping pong table to the next house and traded up for an elk head. How cool is that? I would have stopped there, but Rich didn't. He kept kept trading up. By the end of the night, when Rich came home, he didn't have a dime or a mattress or a ping pong table or an elk head or the five other things he traded up. Richard drove home in a pickup truck. No lie. He started out with a dime and ended up with a Dodge. I remember reading this quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That quote reminds me of a passage in the Bible about a young guy who had a lot of money. He was a good guy, very religious, kept the commandments and the whole bit. Jesus told this guy that if he really wanted to know God, he needed to sell all his possessions and follow him. The man was sad about the exchange. Like me, he liked his stuff, 
but he liked Jesus too. Ultimately, though, the young man had decided he'd worked too hard for what he had. Whatever he had had to trade to get to Jesus was just too important, and what Jesus had to offer was just too intangible. So he chose to keep his stuff rather than follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't have this conversation to shame the rich young ruler. The challenge that comes into the sharp relief is whether we are willing to give up all we have to follow him, to know God. Are we willing to trade up? It's a question worth asking because the answer will shape your life in one way or another. We've all given up something at one time or another. At first, it always feels like a huge sacrifice to give up what we've got. To Jesus, though, it's no sacrifice at all. Think about it from his perspective. He comes from heaven where he has an amazing love relationship with the Father, which by its nature is the most beautiful existence any person could have. And he offers that to anybody willing to let go of whatever is giving them a false sense of security. Why would anybody not make that trade? Jesus is basically saying, look, none of the stuff you have is going to last, including you. You've only got about a dime's worth of life now. Come and trade up, follow me, and you can know God. In that sense, Jesus isn't requiring, requesting a sacrifice at all. He's asking us to play bigger and better, where we give up ourselves and end up with him. It's important to note here that Jesus didn't ask everybody to give up all their stuff. This is something he asked of the rich young ruler because he wanted to teach the young man that he wasn't as holy as he thought he was. He wanted to teach the young man that he still needed God's help to look at what he had had and decide whether he would rather have that or trade up and have what Jesus is offering him, a life with him. Actually, the real game of bigger and better that Jesus is playing with us usually isn't about money or possessions or hopes. It's about our pride. He asks if we'll give that up, give up the thing we're so proud of that causes us to matter so much in the eyes of the world and give it up to follow him. He's asking us, will you take what you think defines you, leave it behind, and let me define who you are instead? The cool thing about Jesus taking up his offer is that whatever controls you doesn't anymore. People who used to be obsessed about being, becoming famous are no longer care whether anybody knows their name. People who used to want power are willing to serve. People who used to chase money freely give it away. People who used to beg others for acceptance are now strong enough to give love. When we get our security from Christ, we no longer have to look for it in the world. And that's a pretty good trade. Do you know what Rich did with that truck? He gave it away. He drove to a church down the street and tossed them the keys. He didn't need it and didn't want it, and he still got an exchange, and what he got in exchange for it was still big, bigger and better. He got a sense of satisfaction, confidence, and reaffirmation that stuff didn't have to control him. While it was a good story to have traded up and gotten a truck, it was an even better story, a more whimsical one, to have given it away at the end. And he got to serve God, not by sacrificing, but by trading up in the way that he lives his life. Although he started with just a dime, he walked away with a great example of how Jesus sees us in the world. Religious people say that Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and I agree, but there's more. Jesus invites us to stand at the door of his house and do some knocking too. And when he opens up a door, he wants us to bring all of the faith we have to him, even if it's just a dime's worth. And he promises that he will trade up with us because he himself is what we have the chance of trading for. And what we'll have to do in exchange for knowing him is everything we've accumulated during our lives and are standing on the porch holding on to. I mean, I read this story and I was immediately struck with the, the question, if nothing else, would I trade a free truck? I mean, and I think we have to answer that question, what's the truck in our life? What's the thing that, that kind of holds us captive? I, I've shared for me, 
Money is the thing that I think of all the time. So maybe the answer for me is I need to give more. What's the thing that holds on to your heart? And I'm not asking for specifics. I'm not asking for individual people, but what are we willing to trade up for? I, I really do believe, and the message of the gospel is that Jesus is offering life with him. He's offering eternal life. He's offering love. He's offering this love, and, and all we have to do is trade up. It really is simple, but it really is difficult as well. It's so simple that he came, he died, he rose again, all for you. What are you willing to trade up for to take advantage of that? I'm going to invite the band back up, and they're going to sing um, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Um, And as they do, I want you to think about this. This is the message that that I've talked about money a lot, and, and I don't want you to hear that we just want your money. The reason I'm having them sing Great is Thy Faithfulness is because this is a song that talks about the faithfulness of God. And I really do believe that when we begin to give, when we begin to, to let go of the things that we could begin to trade up for, he's faithful. He will show us how he's faithful in that. I'll let them sing now. Great. 